Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 25th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thank you for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. An appellate court of in Illinois issued its decision supporting the California Insurance Guarantee Association's position in a dispute about the liquidation of Lumberman's Mutual Casualty Companies. Here's the background to the favorable ruling for SEGA. Lumberman's was a multi-state property and casualty insurance company organized under the law of Illinois. It provided workers' compensation insurance services to California employers. California insurance law required Lumberman's to deposit cash instruments or other collateral which would be held in trust for the benefit of workers as a condition to Lumberman's approval to write workers' compensation insurance in California. Lumberman's was successful and earned profits from its insurance operations for many years, but by 2000, it ranked among the top 20 largest property and casualty insurance companies and the top five largest workers' compensation insurance insurers in the United States with $2.7 billion in net premiums and more than $2 billion in surplus. Beginning in 2003, Lumberman's began suffering from certain financial difficulties, and in July 2003, the company agreed to operate under a runoff plan subject to corrective orders issued by the director of the Illinois Department of Insurance. The corrective orders did not save the company, so by 2013, the director filed a complaint for liquidating with a finding of insolvency. The liquidation order triggered the statutory obligations of state guarantee associations such as SEGA to pay the covered claims of lumbermen's insureds located within their respective states. The California Department of Insurance issued an administrative order directing that the funds held in Lumberman's special deposit be immediately transferred to SEGA and held in a segregated account. The director of the Illinois Department of Insurance claimed that SEGA would be required to exhaust the funds held in their state's special deposit before they could receive disbursements for administrative expenses from the general assets of the Lumberman's estate. But SEGA argued, on the other hand, that the California Insurance Code requires special deposit proceeds to be used solely for the payment of compensable workers' compensation claims. And the appellate court agreed with SEGA in the case of in-ray liquidation of Lumberman's mutual casualty company. It ruled that the Special California's workers' compensation deposit is security for the payment of workers' compensation claims in California and must be used exclusively to protect policyholders from insolvent insurers, and that Lumberman's Mutual Casualty Company's California workers' compensation deposits may not be used to reimburse overhead and administrative expenses incurred in connection with the company's liquidation. And now our crime report. Beverly Hills radiologist Ronald Grust was sentenced in federal court after a jury trial in December resulted in convictions on 39 felony fraud counts. A federal judge imposed a sentence of 10 years in custody and a fine of $250,000 and remanded Dr. Grust into custody. 
His companies, California Imaging Network and Willows Consulting Company, were each required to pay a half a million dollar fine and an additional $15,600 in special assessments. Dr. Grust and his companies paid kickbacks for patient referrals from multiple clinics in San Diego and Imperial Counties in order to fraudulently bill insurance companies over $22 million for medical services. Grust negotiated the payment of kickbacks for the referral of workers' compensation patients for various medical services, including MRIs, ultrasounds, shockwave treatments, toxicology testing, and prescription pain medications. California Imaging Network Medical Group concealed from both the patients and the insurers that substantial kickbacks had been paid in violation of California law. Willow's consulting company funneled the kickback payments to those directing the referral of the patients from various clinics. Dr. Grust paid over $100,000 in bribes to secure the billings for hundreds of patients with bribes paid on a per-patient or per-body-part formula. Grust operated clinics throughout Central and Southern California. He claimed on the witness stand at trial that he was confused and did not know that he was doing something that was illegal. The federal judge rejected this view, stating that Dr. Grust was someone who decided to find a way to defraud, then act dumb on the witness stand when he got caught. She imposed a sentencing penalty for obstruction of justice, finding that he unequivocally committed perjury and lied at trial. The judge said healthcare fraud is an area where criminals are rarely caught, requiring a significant consequence in order to deter would-be criminals. Three additional doctors have been charged in three new cases for their roles in a 15-year-long healthcare fraud scheme started at the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach that involved more than $40 million in illegal kickbacks. As a result of the kickback scheme, more than $580 million in fraudulent bills were submitted mostly to California's workers' compensation system. 60-year-old David Hobart Payne, an orthopedic surgeon who lives in Irvine, was arraigned on charges of conspiracy, honest services fraud, and using an interstate facility to aid in unlawful activity. A five-count superseding indictment returned by a federal grand jury alleges that Payne was bribed approximately $450,000 to steer more than $10 million in kickback-tainted surgeries to the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. And 52-year-old Jeffrey David Gross, an orthopedic surgeon who resides in Dana Point and Las Vegas, was charged in a 14-count indictment. His indictment alleges that Gross made at least $622,000 in exchange for performing or referring more than $19 million in kickback-tainted surgeries to Pacific Hospital. In the third indictment, 51-year-old Lokesh Tantuwaya, who lives in Rancho Santa Fe and Rock Springs, Wyoming, was charged in a 13-count indictment with conspiracy, honest services fraud, 
and using an interstate facility to aid in unlawful activity. The indictment alleges that he received about $3.2 million in kickbacks for referring or performing $38 million in surgeries to Pacific Hospital. The owner of Pacific Hospital, Michael D. Drobot, conspired with doctors, chiropractors, and marketers to pay kickbacks in return for the referral of thousands of patients to the Pacific Hospital for spinal surgeries, primarily through the California Workers' Compensation System. To date, nine defendants have been convicted for participating in the kickback scheme. 42-year-old Erwin Raul Mejia, who lives in Van Nuys, was sentenced to 10 years in state prison following his conviction on 10 felony counts of insurance fraud for his role in a staged auto collision ring that built insurers out of more than $700,000. Mejia was also ordered to pay restitution to six auto insurers, including over $420,000 to Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company. Magia, who was previously convicted of insurance fraud in 2005, pleaded guilty to 10 felony counts of insurance fraud in two separate cases. 25 additional arrests were made in connection with this organized ring, which in total has resulted in $1.7 million in losses to insurers. Nine of those defendants have pleaded guilty to insurance fraud and have been sentenced up to two years in county jail. The other defendants are awaiting a hearing to determine if there is enough evidence to require them to stand trial. Magia worked as a material damage appraiser for Nationwide Insurance, where he inspected damaged vehicles, prepared repair estimates, and issued checks to claimants for their damaged cars. An investigation revealed that Majea and additional suspects orchestrated an elaborate scheme to defraud insurers with paper collisions that never occurred or by intentionally damaging vehicles to submit fraudulent claims. Majea often inflated the damages to the cars in his estimates and even wrote estimates for cars that were not actually damaged. He and a capper recruited people to insure vehicles and make fraudulent claims, resulting in 70 fraudulent claims. After leaving Nationwide Insurance, Magia worked as a claims adjuster at MetLife Insurance in Nevada, where he continued his scheme adjusting known fraudulent claims. Magia issued settlement checks to the claimants that were redirected to his friend in Los Angeles, who was cashing the checks. Then, after leaving MetLife, Magia went to Fred Loya Insurance and then on to Kemper Insurance. Additional victim insurers include State Farm, Wawansa, and Mercury, who were affected by the fraudulent claims, generally as the second party involved, for example, the claimant party. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office prosecuted this case, and the same office convicted Magia on a prior insurance fraud charge in January 2005. And in regulatory news, a new study by the California Workers' Compensation Institute finds that public self-insured losses have been slightly improving. 
California public self-insured workers' compensation claims last year rose less than 0.4%, despite a 2.9% increase in covered employees. The average paid loss per claim increased by $177, pushing aggregate loss payments up 6.3% to a record $372.1 million. The CWCI report was based on the California Office of Self-Insurance Plans' summary of public self-insured claims data. This data was reported to the state by cities and counties, local fire, school, transit, utility, and special district, and joint powers authorities. Public self-insured entities included in the summary covered roughly two, uh, more than 2 million California workers, or nearly 60,000 more employees than in the prior year, with wages and salaries of those covered employees totaling $121 billion. Even with public sector employment on the rise, public self-insured entities reported just 116,000 claims last year, only 421 more than in the prior year. The most significant decline in the public self-insurance claim frequency rate was in 2014 immediately following the enactment of SB 863, the state's workers' compensation reform law, though frequency rebounded sharply the following year. Last year, with claim volume flat and the covered worker force up nearly 3%, public self-insured claim frequency fell to 5.4 claims per 100 employees, continuing the decline that began in 2016. Data on workers' compensation independent medical review decisions issued in the first quarter of this year shows that the process continues to produce consistent outcomes. There has been little change in the number of IMR determination letters and decisions, the percentage of modified or denied treatment requests that are upheld, the types of treatment requests reviewed, and the small number of physicians who are linked to a majority of the disputed medical service requests. The latest IMR results come from a California Workers' Compensation Institute review of my IMR decision letters issued in the first three quarters of this th first three months of this year. The institute's review found that IMR doctors upheld the UR determination 90.6% of the time, while in 9.4% of the cases they deemed the service medically necessary and overturned the UR decision. That uphold rate nearly matched the 91.2% rate noted for IMRs from the two prior years. And just as in each of the five years since the IMR process began in 2013, pharmaceutical requests represented almost half of the IMR decisions in the first quarter of 2018. As in the past, requests for opioids were the most common pharmaceutical request submitted for IMR, accounting for 31% of all prescription drug IMRs in the first quarter. Those percentages could change in the future as a result of the new prescription drug formulary and regulations, which set new limits and rules for prescribing opioids. The latest results also show that compound drugs represent a dwindling share of the prescription drug IMRs. As in prior results, the 
Latest IMR data also showed that a small number of physicians continued to account for a disproportionate share of the disputed medical services submitted for IMR. The DWC has issued a notice of public hearing for proposed evidence-based updates to the medical treatment utilization schedule. The public hearing is scheduled for July 18 at 10 a.m. in the auditorium of the Elihu Harris Building in Oakland. Members of the public may review and comment on the proposed updates no later than July 18. The proposed updates incorporate the latest published guidelines from ACOM for traumatic brain injury, the general approaches section on prevention, initial assessment and documentation, and cornerstones of disability prevention and management. Each year, the California Chamber of Commerce releases a list of job-killer bills to identify legislation that it says will decimate economic and job growth in California. The Chamber tracks the bills throughout the rest of the legislative session and works to educate legislators about the serious consequences of these bills will have on the state. The 2018 annual list of job killer bills calls attention to the negative impact that 28 proposed measures would have on California's job climate and economic recovery should they become law. Many of the bills on the list propose new taxes. For example, AB 2351 called the Targeted Tax on High Earners, increases the personal income tax rate from 13.3%, which is already by far the highest income tax rate in the country, to 14.3%. ACA 22, the Middle Class Fiscal Relief Act, increases California's 8.84 corporate tax rate, already one of the highest in the nation, to 18.84% which will encourage companies to leave the state and discourage companies from expanding or relocating here. And SB 993, called Tax on Services, proposes a 3% tax on services purchased by businesses in California with some exceptions, adding another layer of taxes onto California companies, raising costs and putting them at a competitive disadvantage. An SB 1398 increased tax rate bill threatens to significantly increase the corporate tax rate on publicly held corporations and financial institutions up to 15%, according to the wages paid to employees in the United States. The 2018 list also tracks 2017 carryover bills that were started in 2017 and continue to be considered in the 2018 legislative session. More details and updates on all of the 2018 legislation can be tracked on the 2018 Job Killer Bills webpages. And in medical news, the pharmaceutical giant behind the painkiller OxyContin said it cut its entire remaining sales team for its products which will effectively end any contact the company has with medical providers. 
The company eliminated more than half of their sales force in February when they announced an official end to their promotion of opioid painkillers directly to doctors. The previous cuts left roughly 200 employees working on their sales team. The company says it is shifting primary focus to research and development into medications aimed at treating cancer and central nervous system disorders. Dozens of lawsuits across the country allege Purdue Pharma launched a fraudulent marketing scheme to boost sales of OxyContin in the late 1990s that downplayed the risks for addiction. Purdue Pharma denies allegations of complicity in the opioid epidemic and said they are committed to curbing rates of opioid abuse. Purdue Pharma is owned by the Sackler family, listed at 19th on the annual Forbes list of wealthiest families in the country at a net worth of $13 billion. The family's fortune largely comes from OxyContin sales, which its company branded and introduced as an extended release painkiller in 1995. A new study shows how tranquilizers known as benzodiazepines and opioids are a deadly combination. Common benzodiazepines include Valium, Xanax, and Clonopin, among others. The drug class is a sedative commonly prescribed for anxiety or to help with insomnia. Benzodiazepines, sometimes called benzos on the street, work to calm or sedate a person by raising the level of inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA in the brain. Between 1996 and 2013, the number of adults who filled a benzodiazepine prescription increased from 8.1 million to 13.5 million, and the quantity obtained also increased. Combining opioids and benzodiazepines can be unsafe because both types of drug sedate users and suppress breathing, the cause of overdose fatality, in addition to impairing cognitive functions. In 2015, 23% of people who died of an opioid overdose also tested positive for benzodiazepines. Unfortunately, many people are prescribed both drugs simultaneously. In a study of over 300,000 continuously insured patients receiving opioid prescriptions between 2001 and 2013, the percentage of persons also prescribed benzodiazepines rose to 17% in 2013 from 9% in 2001. The study showed that people concurrently using both drugs are at a higher risk of visiting the emergency department or being admitted to a hospital for a drug-related emergency. Previous studies have also highlighted the dangers of co-prescribing opioids and benzodiazepines. A cohort study in North Carolina found that the overdose death rate among patients receiving both types of medications was 10 times higher than among those only receiving opioids. In a study of overdose deaths in people prescribed opioids for non-cancer pain in Canada, 60% also tested positive for benzodiazepines. 
And a study among U.S. veterans with an opioid prescription found that receiving a benzodiazepine prescription was associated with increased risk of drug overdose death in a dose-response fashion. In 2016, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued new guidelines for the prescribing of opioids. The CDC recommended that clinicians avoid prescribing benzodiazepines concurrently with opioids whenever possible. Both prescription opioids and benzodiazepines now carry FDA black box warnings on the label, highlighting the dangers of using these drugs together. And claims administrators should keep an eye out for physicians who have somehow failed to read the memo. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Scarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.